When you go from being a cog in a wheel to being the ultimate decision maker and the person who has ultimate authority and responsibility for everything in an organization, I learned very quickly, and I think a lot of people learn very quickly that you don't know anything. And the stuff that you do know is valuable, mm-hmm. but you have to learn every day something new. We'd love for you to just give us give us a little background on 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 Tony the person. Where'd you grow up? You know, brothers, sisters, a little bit about your family, and we'll we'll take it from there. Sure, thanks. I grew up in I guess the formative years grew up in a town west of here called River Forest. I have three brothers, one older, two younger no sisters. So I grew up in a family of four boys. You know, my parents are still married today, a happy marriage and sort of taught us what it looks like to, to have a great marriage. And I'm super close with my brothers still. In fact, the four of us all live within about a two mile radius of one another here, here in the city. So big Italian, happy family. <laughs> Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. Well- yeah. And and this is Tony. I love having people join from Chicago because we Michael being from down in Fort Worth, right? He's we're used to having a lot of Texas guests on too. So I'm I'm glad to be able to talk to somebody from the Chicagoland area, uh, so we can make fun of the way that Michael talks. Wait, so on that, Michael, my my father's family immigrated to America in the 1950s from Italy. My mother's family is from Texas. So my grandfather ah, was on the, I knew on that like, side. Tony, this isn't helping. <laughs> I, 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 have to, I have to throw you a bone. So my, my grandfather on my maternal side was born in Abilene, Texas. He went to college in Texas. My mom spent years traveling kind of all over the, the country for his job, but they ultimately settled in Houston, in Conroe, Texas, if you know, the sure. Houston area. Yep. So my, my mom actually finished high school in Conroe, Texas. So it's interesting you know, growing up in Chicago and having an Italian immigrant side and then also going down to visit grandma and grandpa and wearing shit kickers and cowboy boots and a hat. And <laughs> it was a, it was a really cool exposure and experience for us though, growing up. See, Bob, no matter how hard you try, it all just connects back to Texas. You're just going to have to accept that fact. I think we should today. start this podcast over. <laughs> hey, Tony, my, my family is from Abilene. It's a, it's a great place and certainly growing a lot right now. That's hilarious. So, Tony, you said you fall in the, you got two older and one younger, right? Other way around. One older, oh, two okay. younger. Okay. Yep. You know, growing up with, with four boys, how was that growing up with, with four boys? Competitive, dirty, aggressive, a lot of fighting, physical fighting, a lot of disciplinary issues at school, and the local police department got to know my parents pretty well. <laughs> As you think about that before, I always think about how those relationships with, you know, my brother and sister, I'm, I'm close, very close with both of them. Sounds like you all are close now. I think that's important as you, you know, you think about family and how that shapes who you are. So maybe talk about some of the, like the influence of, you know, your brothers and your guys' relationship and how you guys all interact and, and how that, you know, is in your world today. Yeah. So from top to bottom, from oldest to youngest, there's a 10 year age gap. My older brother and I were certainly raised by parents in, mostly in their 30s. And my two younger brothers were raised by parents mostly directionally in their 40s. And I think the parenting styles and the risk tolerance and the willingness to just acquiesce, you know, grew tremendously year over year because 
you know, we, my older brother and I kind of laugh about this. It feels like we were raised quite differently than the, the younger two brothers. You know, I think my curfew in high school was like maybe 1030. And by the time the youngest, you know, was in high school, I don't think he had a curfew. Right. So <laughs> stuff like that. And the interesting thing too, is I think the relationship has grown probably more so as we've become adults, because, you know, we were all three or four years apart. So it was, it was not uncommon for all of us to be in totally different stages of life of our life. Mm-hmm. And now that we're all in our thirties or forties at this point and starting families and having spouses and sort of, and that sort of stuff, it's kind of brought us back together and certainly made us a lot closer. I would say the thing that my brothers are, are still able to do that few people are able to do in my life are they, they always make sure to keep my big ego in check. So I can count on them to sort of call <laughs> bullshit and, you know, give me a hard time. And, and I think when a lot of us get into positions like the two of you are in, you know, positions that I've been in, you know, sometimes it's hard to have people around you that'll call balls and strikes, right. And tell you mm-hmm. the truth and care about you and confront you and give you shit. And so yeah. it's, it's nice to have those, brothers still around to be like, yeah, you remember when you did this or you, you dumbass, I can't believe you did that. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think as we get on years and have more successes professionally, it's important to have people around you to be like, yeah, I remember you when you were, you know, stealing bubble gum when you were seven years old or whatever it was. Right. I think that's been a really important value system in my life. No, that that's great. I mean, you know, all, all three of us are in YPO today. And the reason I, I go there is we were, I was talking with some folks in, in YPO just about how, as you, you kind of do raise in your career, you have less and less of people that will give you the hard and real truth. And I definitely have a spouse that has no problem giving me the real truth, but to find <laughs> people at work or outside of that, even in your friendship group that are going to be honest with you, uh, that's huge. So I'm, you know, that support system is fantastic. Agreed. My wife subscribes to the yeah. same theory, by the way. <laughs> if you really want a rear or a, a mirror moment, try having two teenage daughters. They will tell you exactly what they think about you. Um, <laughs> and it can be a very humbling experience. So honest feedback is, is something I think we don't get enough of these days sometimes. Michael, I, I totally I hear you. The morning that cranes in Chicago announced that I was one of the 40 under forties last year. I was like on top of the world, text messages are rolling in calls are rolling in emails are rolling in. And I'll never forget this. It was like six 45 in the morning and I'm downstairs and my two year old daughter looks at me and she's like, pancakes, pancakes, pancakes. <laughs> she didn't give a shit. You know, she couldn't care less about any yeah. accolades. She's like, dad, I want my pancakes. Like, let's go. And again, humbling, and just a good reminder, like, you know, don't take yourself too seriously because yeah. the people that really matter don't actually care about any of that stuff. Yeah. 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 So perspective. you got a two-year-old. What what else is going on at home on the home front? So we've got, uh, I've got two daughters as well, Michael. So six, six-year-old daughter, two-year-old daughter, and we actually have a third baby coming in August. This baby's due on our wedding anniversary, which I thought was incredibly serendipitous. And yeah, we're excited. We are going to be surprised on the sex. We did that. That's what I was going to ask. We found out the first time with the first kid, we had to know like 12 weeks in like, okay, let's get the genetic testing. Let's get the gender. Let's get all this sort of stuff. And with Grace, our second, we were like, you know what? Let's just be surprised because how often in life do we have any 
positive, great, fun surprises anymore. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be surprised again. I would say of, you know, as fast as our careers move and needs of clients and world climate change, what like nothing changes as fast as just watching your kids grow up. Like it's, it's unbelievable that I just got back looking at colleges for my oldest daughter and it feels like yesterday she was yelling at me for pancakes when she was two. So it enjoy every minute. It goes by incredibly quickly. I wanted to circle back on your, your ego comment. Cause I've thought, I, I don't have any older siblings. I just have one younger brother and then a stepsister. Like did the ego form become, because you were second in line, and so you were trying to be bigger or better or faster than your brother. Did it did it form because you had two younger brothers and you wanted them to like? How did that? How did the brother dynamic play into that? That's a great question. I think first of all, I think the male ego is the most fragile thing in the world, and I don't <laughs> think it's talked about often enough. And 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 uncontrolled, you know, it can make it can make people make incredibly poor decisions. You know, my older brother is actually my half brother came from my dad's first marriage. So during the week growing up in those formative years, I was the oldest. And then on the weekends, my older brother would sort of show up. Right. And so that dynamic is, is can be challenging because you, you don't really know your place. And I had to learn quickly how to adapt to different situations and sort of be a chameleon. And frankly, that's probably served me really well in my professional career. But you spend five out of seven days as the oldest, you're the boss, you're in charge. And then all of a sudden, now you've got someone that you have to show deference to. That relationship and those dynamics for all of us, I think, have played a role in who we became as as men. And even still to this day, right? You're you get to a level where you're, where you're incredibly confident in what you're doing and saying, but uh, when you get back in the situation where the four of you are together, you're at a family function, it's kind of like you almost roll back into what you were as kids. And so that's been an interesting dynamic between my older brother and I and my younger brothers and probably all of us. So, but yeah, I think the male ego is just incredibly fragile. Uh, you know, I think you, you have to have a certain level of ego to achieve you know, and continue to push yourself and continuously improve. For me, it's just balancing my ego with self-awareness. Yeah. How do you be grateful for what you have? And I do thank God every morning for what I have and what I've been blessed with. And also continue to strive for more. Sure. Uh, That's the challenge that, you know, I'm constantly trying to check my ego. And also, Michael, it goes back, that ego piece goes all the way back to my grandfather who was raised by, you know, incredibly evangelical Christian folks in Abilene, Texas, where you just didn't talk about yourself, you know? So it's like the idea that you would be a prima donna in his words, just wasn't a thing that we would have. So I had all these different influences teaching me to be humble, but I also probably inherently had a a big enough ego to continue to push me forward and challenge myself. So constantly trying to keep that in check. Sure. What are some of those things that you use? And these are a lot of the conversations we have on this podcast, Tony. It's like, what are some of the things that you're using that you would tell some of our listeners around that balance, some good practices or disciplines that you have to keep that self-awareness and, you know, I'll say humility. Yeah. I think when you, if you are able to surround yourself with folks that 
are have done more than you are more successful than you are wealthier than you whatever it is you're trying to chase it frames it kind of changes your perspective on things and so i've been blessed in my life to have a great vistage group for the last six years we've been together almost seven years and there's folks in that group that you know i aspire to be when i grow up one day and so it's really humbling to hear those stories you know our business, I guess, I guess the other thing too is YPO, right? So YPO, right. you're, you, you meet folks, you guys know this, you meet people in YPO and you're like, you hear their stories and you're like, what? Like, I thought I was yeah. killing it. And you're like, no, 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 no. You're, these guys just getting out of bed. So I think elevating the, the folks that you surround yourself with certainly help humble me. All the interactions with your children are just incredibly humbling when you really just want a six-year-old to do what you're asking them to do and all the rationalization and the logic in the world would say, yeah, this makes a ton of sense. They just aren't going to do it. And there's really, it's incredibly frustrating at times to figure out how to motivate them because you don't have a lot of those scenarios in your day-to-day life, right? You, you've got your leadership team and you've got your clients and you're trying to do right by them and influence them and give them good data to make decisions. And, and then you, you run that same program at home and your six-year-old's like, Absolutely not. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There's, <laughs> those moments are, are super humbling, right? And then frankly, you know, I think another, hum, you know, humility moment and probably changing perspective moment is my wife going through breast cancer and an incredibly rare form of cancer that frankly, like, could have killed her. You know, so that that changes your perspective on a lot of stuff and, and makes you realize that in, in the grand scheme of things, you can only control certain amount of things in your life. And so trying to stay humble is, is important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on that note, so first of all, wife is doing good now. Everything is good there. Yeah. Thanks for asking Bob five years. We actually celebrated five years cancer free in August of last year. She and I got away from the kids and, and went to Maui for a week and celebrated and again, just yeah. grateful and, you know, thank the yeah. Lord that she's, she's still with us and she's doing great. And she was able to get pregnant again for, you know, both with grace and this upcoming baby that we're having. So God willing, you know, this continues on this path, but yeah, five years is really the mark you want to hit right? where you sort of, you sort of have a little bit of certainty. It's never a hundred percent, but you have a lot more certainty at mm-hmm. five years. Yeah. Well, and if you're, if you're open to it, Tony, you know, Part of this podcast is, you know, we talk about some of these defining moments, these challenges, these crossroads that we run to in our life, because, you know, you could look from the outside and look at Tony and say, man, life's good. You know, he's got a wife, a couple daughters, he's running a successful business, you know, talk about what you went through during the tough time and what are some of the things that helped you to get through it? Yeah. Do you ever, you ever hear that saying of, and I, I'm going to butcher it, but, but the concept is like, when you look at a, you look at a swan in a body of water and you just look at that majestic, beautiful creature just kind of gliding through the water. And what you don't see is what's happening underwater. And they're, they're flurrying with a flurry of, you know, pitter pattering underneath to stay floating. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we as a society sometimes have a propensity to sort of look at successful people and be envious and be jealous. And what a lot of people don't really understand is the work that, it takes to get into that position. And then I think even further, what's, what's probably not understood is the, the weight of all of that and the constant struggle to maintain that position that you've created is actually probably more challenging than getting there in the first place. So 
I guess with respect to Alex's breast cancer, so I guess picture, picture this. So our daughter, Sophie, is 11 months old. We are 32 years old at that point. And I found a something that felt wrong on one of her breasts. And I won't get into the details of how we found that, but I found it. <laughs> and um, I said, you know, boy, that doesn't feel right. Like something about that feels, it felt like a marble inside your body. And, you know, it's like, well, it's, we got a new baby and uh, I'm 32 and, you know, breastfeeding and all this sort of stuff. So she, she just kind of brushed it off and, you know, a week goes by and I said, Hey, you know, you should really make a doctor's appointment to go get that checked out. And maybe let's just fast forward another week or two. And I'm continuously pressing, Hey, did you make that appointment? Did you make that appointment? So finally she, she makes the appointment. She goes in and sees her OBGYN. They did a, they did a, uh, examination and, you know, the doctor said the same thing, right? Like, listen, you've got an 11 month old, you're breastfeeding, clogged milk ducts, all this sort of stuff. The chances that you have breast cancer are incredibly low, but as a precautionary measure, let's just be safe. Let's go get a MRI. And so they went and did an MRI and they saw something that they didn't like. And again, the doctor's like, listen, the chances that at age 32, you have breast cancer are so incredibly low, but as a precautionary measure, let's get a biopsy. And so they biopsied the, the, what we thought was you know, a clogged milk duct again, out of just pure precaution. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I'm driving home from Bobolink, which Bob, I know you know, and, and Michael is just a phenomenal, great golf course here in Chicago. And it's, uh, you know, middle of the day in July. I just got done playing golf with some clients. And my wife calls and I answer and she goes, I'm patching in the oncologist. And we get on the phone. The oncologist reads us the re results together on the phone. And they basically said, you have cancer. You have breast cancer. Wow. And I was on uh, 9094 you know, passing Irving Park Road or whatever. I, and I almost crashed because it's such a shock to your system. And, and you just can't believe that it's possibly true. Right. And that, so both of us heard at the same time, you have cancer. And that's, those are like three words you just, you never want to hear in your life. And so from there, from sort of that point on, we snapped into like, how do we fix this mode? And you know, that really changed, it changed our life forever in, in every way. Wow. How did, you know, during that moment, like, you got to be there to support her. Like, how are you doing? You know, you're there to support her and be strong, right? You know, where were you getting that strength from? Yeah. So the course of treatment, my wife was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which is not uh, not your common breast cancer that you hear about that women are getting in their forties and fifties. It's an incredibly rare form of breast cancer and it, it functions much more like a, like a aggressive blood cancer almost in the sense that it multiplies in size. The tumor multiplies in size incredibly fast and it's incredibly likely to spread. So we wound up going to uh, Northwestern. We wound up getting a second opinion at university of Chicago and ultimately decided to go at University of Chicago for treatment. And the course of treatment is chemotherapy. So she wound up doing maybe 12 rounds of chemotherapy, losing her hair, you know, and that, that course of time takes months because you can't do them all back to back. So, 
you know, every month, every other Monday or something like that for, you know, four or five months, we were at university of Chicago all day getting chemotherapy. And then on my 33rd birthday, I believe it was my 33rd birthday. She had a procedure where they removed both breasts called a double mastectomy and did a full reconstructive surgery where they replaced them. And so I spent the evening of my 33rd birthday laying on a chair at the University of Chicago Hospital with my wife who had just undergone an incredibly major surgery. Meanwhile, we have a, you know, at that time we had a, you know, 15 month old daughter, right? So during the course of treatment and really thereafter for specifically around the chemotherapy for, you know, usually two to three days post treatment, uh, my wife was in bed, totally yeah. horizontal, couldn't move. Right. So not only am I trying to be a caretaker, I'm also trying to be a father to my, my new daughter who's a baby at this point. And then I've got this other baby that's growing at big construction. And so, man, where did I find strength? It's a great question. I, uh, I really probably psychologically compartmentalize things where if I was going to show up and be a caretaker, I really was going to be focused on being a caretaker. And when I had to be a father, I was focused on being a father. And when I had to be a leader in the organization, I really focused on being a leader in the organization. And I didn't allow myself to think or worry about those other spheres while I was in one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe not the most psychological healthy way to do it, but it was just really pure adrenaline and coping mechanism. And then, you know, when you get on the other side of all the treatment and the health is sort of back, that's when the real work starts, you know, for, for both the caretaker and the patient where you have to then emotionally and psychologically deal with everything that has just happened. Because when you're in it, you're focused on saving somebody's life. Yeah. Post saving the life, then you have to really unpack all of the feelings and emotions that have gone into it and around it. And, you know, frankly, we're all, we're coming up on six years and it's not, it's not like it's over. Mm -hmm. So we're still working through a lot of the stuff that you need to, to get on the other side of this emotionally. Yeah. And honestly, that's been the hardest part. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing, mm -hmm. man. I mean, yeah, that's in in incredible. I'm so glad to hear that she's doing well and, you know, and prayers to you guys and hopefully things continue in the right direction, man. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that too. I think there's, there's so much documentation of health issues of the people going through it, but oftentimes, you know, they wouldn't make it through it without the caretaker and we don't focus enough on, you know, just the, the mental fortitude you have to have. I, I agree. I think compartmentalizing it that way, like you talked about with sort of your three different buckets, is probably one of the only ways that you can get through it because you've got to show up 100% in each one of those buckets to be effective. And, you know, I think truly, truly great fathers, husbands, leaders can do that. It's, it, but it's not easy. And it, it, you know, I think you get into your 30s, 40s, 50s, and something along this line is going to happen to you. I think that's just called life, you know, whether it's a parent or a loved one or a kid or whatever. But there's a lot of lessons to be learned by the people that are the ones doing the caretaking. So thank you again for sharing that. Yeah, no, it's been 
ironically, the Immerman Angels organization is set up a lot for mentors and mentees, both on the patient and the caretaker side. So, you know, I've really thrown myself into the Immerman Angels world and I, I get to meet husbands mostly that are going through the exact same thing I went through and just, yeah. just talk and just, Hey, what are you thinking? And how can I help? And you want to just talk about but one of the guys that I'm with right now is like, you know, we spent 30 minutes just talking about skiing one day mm-hmm. because you just, the reason that YPO exists is because being a leader is incredibly lonely. But I also think organizations like Immerman exist because being a caretaker or being a patient is incredibly lonely. I mean, how often do you have folks in your very close friend group that can truly understand what you're going through? So again, just those peer groups are, are have been so helpful for me. Yeah. You know, Tony, we went through uh, an exercise and Michael, I don't know if you've been through this yet or Tony, if you guys have done it, the lifeline exercise. Yep. Right. And the lifeline exercise just kind of is, hey, talk to us about from, you know, the day you were born until where you are today. And, and let's map out those ups and downs in your world. And I think one of the interesting findings in that is, you know, is we we work through it as like everybody, just about everybody has stuff that has happened in their world that has taken them down to a, a, a very low spot. Right. And, and everybody's yeah. low is different and everything that got them there is different, but there's like a common thread there. Of, you're going to have some downs in life and how are you going to bounce back from those? And you know, thinking that, like thinking about that, Tony, like, is this leads into, Hey, you're, you're starting to build big construction during this difficult time. And I think before we go there, like maybe start that story out of like the work career and then let's work that in of like how some of the tough times that you and your wife went through probably have helped to build you and some of those lessons you've learned through that. Sure. Yeah. I think some words come to mind when you say what you said and, and grit is, is such an important trait for, you know, personal and professional success and resilience is, is another one that comes to mind for me where you, I was forced to learn how to be gritty even beyond what I thought I was capable of. And I was forced to learn true resilience when your back is against the wall, how are you going to react? And I think it's a really incredible test and shows you that you can get through anything. And so then you kind of, you kind of roll that into your professional life. And, and the reality is like anything that we face in our professional careers is probably not going to feel the same as when you're fighting for your spouse's life. And so, you know, the other, I guess the third word that comes to me is gratitude, right? So being grateful for those experiences is important because I believe God has a plan for all of us. I believe that you are put in these situations for a reason mostly because you can handle them and understanding that you aren't going to be given anything that you can't handle and really truly believe in that, I think is important. Yeah. And so, yeah, on the career front, right. So, you know, I started my, I guess like from a construction perspective, I've always been really from the time I could work in and around construction from when I was in high school, I worked for a home, kind of a home remodeler guy in Oak park, renovating old homes in the summers (laughs) And then when I was, when I turned 18, I joined the concrete laborers union, local 76 over at Harlem and Belmont. 
and I worked for Lick and Concrete Cutting, which is a you yeah. know uh, sub tiers of contractor cutting concrete openings and coring holes for man doors on industrial buildings or pipe runs for plumbers or HVAC contractors. And I mean, I spent a month working nights at the Palmolive building, if you remember when that was being redeveloped. Yes. Vince Vaughn had the penthouse or something like that when he was a big time <laughs> actor. So I'm dating myself a little bit, but working at that subcontractor tier level, two things I learned from that was one, that is incredibly hard work. And I need to go back to college every summer because I did not want to do that as a career. And <laughs> two, I need to figure out how to elevate myself, right? So you're you're in the field actually doing the work. That's a great career for many, many yeah. people. I knew it wasn't for me. And so I, we were working on a project for John Buck on Wacker. One of his developments might have been One North Wacker. It's like 2004 or five. And it might have been 71 South Wacker. Anyways, I, I, I understood from being on that job site after, by the end of it that there was a construction management world. And by the way, I'm studying like business management at Indiana, mm-hmm. doing construction work, kind of want to be a developer. And I'm like, wow, this construction management thing's pretty interesting. I never really knew, Bob, until those moments that there was a professional career inside construction. Yeah. My grandfather came over from Italy in the 50s and he was a plumber. So you kind of understand that there's construction trades and people do work and things get built, but I was exposed at a very low level to construction management. I was like, Oh, this seems really cool. Yeah. And then I spent my last summer of college in, uh, interning for David Witts at Continental. Right. I forgot about that. Which, you know, I met your dad and, you know, Rick Martyr and, and, you know, Witts and Dave Chorley, who's now the president of Continental. I actually, I was Dave's intern. Okay. Uh, going into my senior year of college and, you know, David and Dave really wanted to hire me. And I was like, this is really cool. Problem is I didn't want to drive to Skokie every day. That's right. They're in Skokie. I wanted to live in the city so that, you know, they're, they're in Skokie at the time. And I'm like, man, I don't really want to be making this commute. And they, they kind of helped me see the bigger picture too. And I, I, I got hooked up with Clune Construction. Yep. And I met John Clune and, you know, John said to me like, Hey, I really like you. I want to hire you. I'm going to make you an offer, but you have to accept before you go back to lunch. So that was the deal. So I think I got an offer for like $42,000. And I thought I was like a millionaire, you know, right? <laughs> um, no negotiation. I never asked any questions about work-life balance. I can promise you that. And it was like, all right, I'm doing this. Right. And so I went back to college and I had this job with, with Clune and had a great time my senior year. Cause I didn't have to worry about getting a job. So then I literally graduated college packed up a, a moving thing, drove it to the city, moved into an apartment and showed up at Clune on the next Monday and started working. And those guys at the time were probably about a hundred million dollar business yeah. with a Chicago office and a slowly burgeoning Los Angeles operation. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really just getting off the ground. So I learned from some of the best people in the business. Yeah. And, you know, they're a billion dollar plus company today with, with nationwide locations. And a lot of those folks that I had the opportunity to work with and learn from are now, you know, in, in leadership positions, Dave yeah. Hall, Brian O'Shea, Vince Kudakans, all those guys were on projects at the time, uh, Chris Redpath. But the number one guy who really stood out to me, in addition to John Clune for giving me the opportunity, was Mike Clune. Mm-hmm. And here's a good story lesson learned. So I'm probably three weeks into the job. 
we go to the John Buck Spring Fling. I think they still, I think we're, I think they're still doing them. But at the time, you know, this is 2006 or seven. It was a big deal. It was like and the party to go to. It was the one you go to. Yep. And I'm 22 years old, fresh out of college. And as you can imagine, there was quite a few beers and other things that were consumed and shots. And <laughs> to make a long story short, I stayed out with Dave Chorley until one or two o'clock in the morning. Dave probably didn't have to go into the office the next day. Well, I did because the expectation was not only are you in the office every day, you were in your seat at 7.30 a.m. no matter what you did the night before. And it really started at the top with Mike. Yeah. Mike was out entertaining clients all the time. And Mike was always in the office walking around whistling at 7.30 in the morning looking to see who wasn't there. <laughs> so I show up. Were you wearing uh, a suit? Didn't they wear suits at the time too? We, 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 had, we weren't in suits at that point, but we were definitely in you know button downs and slacks. Yeah. And I wake up in my bed in Lakeview the next morning at, let's call it 7.45. So I'm already 15 minutes late. There's absolutely no opportunity to get on a train and, and get there on time. So I, I get a cab from Lakeview into the loop, which was probably $28 that I didn't have, but I had no choice. I walk in, it's probably 8.15 or 8.20 at this point, And I am sweating. I'm probably green because I had way too many beers. And I walk in, I go to my desk and there's a box with all my belongings from my desk in the box. Ooh. There's a note that there's a note on it that says, Tony, see me, John, John Clune. <laughs> I don't even know if John remembers this. I hope he does. Well, that wasn't great. So I take the box. I walk over to John's office and John Clune and Mike Clune are sitting in his office. It's now about 830 on a Friday morning. And Mike looks at me and he goes, Oi, Dude, dude, coming in. I'll, I'll, I'll remove some of the expletives. That, that's sort of what he said. And I couldn't get the words out. I mean, I'm stammering, stuttering. I'm super hungover. I'm 22. I have no idea what's happening. The owner of this company is probably firing me. And he looks at me and he goes, you can't. He goes, he goes you know, my brother tells me you're a pretty smart kid. But you can't even think of a fucking lie. <laughs> and I am just like, <gasps> and he looks at me and he told me something that was really important. He goes, listen, going out at night is part of the job, but you need to show up or don't ever be late again. Go back to your desk. And it was like that idea of work hard, play hard, much less of an idea than work life balance, which we hear about far too often today. Right really just hit me like a ton of bricks. So I went back to my desk, took the box, unpacked my stuff. And as you can imagine, all of the other 20 or 30 somethings in the office thought that was the funniest thing they had ever seen. Right. <laughs> so I got, I got shit for that for months, but it was a really good, valuable lesson. And fast forwarding into the financial crisis, you know, that business really, really struggled a lot like ours did during COVID. And so Pretty much all of my peers wound up getting laid off during the financial crisis, except myself and Sean Clune. Mm -hmm. we, we made it through the cut. And I kind of looked around and realized it's probably time for me to, to make a move. And I met uh, who became a mentor to me, Rick Mattiota, who was the president of Leopardo and, and Rick recently passed away. But Rick, yeah. was a men Rick was a mentor to me. Rick, Really good man. You know, Gino, his son was, was a dear friend and, and Rick really took me under his wing a lot like he did Gino and convinced me to come to Leopardo, showed me an opportunity, gave me the opportunity. And throughout the course of my years at Leopardo, Rick, even though he sat the 
ultimate decision makers role at the firm was always there to give me good, honest, sage advice. And, you know, when I got to the end of the road at Leopardo, Rick was caring enough and aware enough to sit me down over a couple of old fashions and say, you're never going to get what you want here. And without getting into too much detail to hear from the president of the organization in your late twenties, when you've just been made the youngest executive of the company's history. Yeah. You know, I was 29 years old. I was the first, I was the youngest executive in the company's history to hear from the president that probably not, you're not going to get what you want here. Yeah. Then was another moment where I realized, okay, it's probably time to start looking for other opportunities. And ultimately throughout negotiations with Leopardo for me to stay, they decided it would be better to fire me. So, you know, I walk in on a Monday morning to a meeting after the, the afternoon before having just celebrated my wife's first Mother's Day. You know, we were expecting our first daughter a couple months later. So we celebrated Mother's Day. And I just had this feeling that this probably wasn't going to be a great meeting. And I walk in and, you know, you've got the head of HR there and you've got the CFO there and you've got my manager. And they said, today's your last day. And I was a, if not the top producer, I was one of the top producers of the, of the firm. And that's an incredibly humbling experience yeah. to get, to get shit canned when you're like, well, wait a second, the numbers speak for themselves. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm in an executive level and I've got all the numbers to support it and a strong team and client satisfaction, all this sort of stuff. And I really had the opportunity to take a step back and again, get hit like a ton of bricks and realize none of that shit matters because I'm working for somebody else that has changed their mind about the trajectory of my own career. Mm -hmm. That was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my career because yeah. it gave me the opportunity to let the marketplace hear what was happening and the opportunities started to come to me. So maybe we'll stop there. And I don't know if you guys want to dive in on any of that stuff. Michael, you got anything? You know, I think it, it, it's sort of a, a theme we talk about a lot. I mean, the, the power of reflection as we get older is, is at least a tool that, that Bob and I talk about a lot. Like it's, if you're willing to do it and willing to do the work and reflect, you can learn a lot. So looking back on that now with the decision that was made, what have you learned about that versus what you knew then? So much. So the first thing that comes to mind, I mentioned earlier, is the male ego is the most fragile thing in the world. And it was a good reminder to me, one, to never get too ahead of myself because you never know what's coming around the corner. And two, I really have led my organization and coached my team to never be in a situation like that again, where my ego could potentially get in the way of a really bad business decision. Because that was an incredibly bad business decision from their side. Now, the other thing I learned is I was a shitty employee. Mm. I was a skillful politician. I was really, really good at saying a lot of the right things. But from a core values perspective, my vision was not aligned with the organization's vision. And so in hindsight, having the ability to look back seven years later, they were not the problem. I was the problem. And they did me a favor by firing me because, you know, frankly, had they have acquiesced and increased the financial compensation, I probably would have had to sign a longer term agreement to stay there 
And the reality is, as you guys know, who are, are driven professionals, it was never going to be enough. Yeah. And so another lesson learned for me is core values are important. And we hire and we fire at big for our core value. And if you're not humble, hungry, and smart, you're probably not going to last very long here. Mm-hmm. And so again, I, I, I'm humble enough and aware enough to realize that I, I was the problem. I was not a good employee. And so then you're faced with, okay, if, if you're not a good employee, you need to go do it on your own and go figure it out. And I knew just enough, Michael, to be dangerous. And I said, oh, I can do that, right? I mean, these, if these guys are doing it, I can certainly do it. Maybe a little ego in there. A little bit of ego. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're fueled at that point. I was largely fueled by proving them wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, that fuel, which arguably is not sustainable, right? Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. It was incredible fuel to the fire. Probably not super healthy and certainly not sustainable. You know, looking back on that day when you walked in, think this is going to be a very good meeting. And now you're the boss of a, you know, CEO of a very successful company probably making decisions like that on a fairly regular basis. Like how did they know that that was the right decision for their organization and ultimately for you? Yeah, I think, I I guess I can't really speak to their thought process, but if I reflect back on it, I think a lot of my behavior was Mm self-serving and that's not, if you want to be in a leadership position and not just a sales guy or, or girl, you probably need to focus on the organization as a whole. And it's a lot easier for me to focus on the organization as a whole because it's my organization. It's something that's part of me that I've built. It was very difficult for me to focus on an organization that frankly wasn't mine and I didn't really see a path forward to becoming part of the organization, having a seat at the table, having a real voice. I didn't see that. And frankly, it didn't exist. So but again, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But I think it was my behavior was not aligned with what it should have. My behavior was focused on probably too much selfish activity and not thinking about the whole. So Tony, when you you and I have had this conversation a handful of times just from like culture and like these I'll say squishier topics, right? You mentioned the core values for big construction and being humble, hungry, and smart. So when you think about casting that vision to the rest of the organization, like what what is that like? Like you guys, I mean, I see a lot of the things online that you're doing, which is amazing. Like that just that outside perspective. How is it internally? How are you taking that from the top and making sure everybody else is you know, kind of aligned with those core values to your point of, hey, I wasn't maybe aligned with their core values when I was there or their vision. So how are you helping to align that as the, you know, as the leader there? And that's because of my experience being a bad actor inside an organization. It, it helped frame how to create an organization that is focused and stands up and is true to their word on their core values. So so I say humble, hungry, and smart. That's really a hiring and firing okay. methodology. Our core values are gotcha. drive, drive, trust, ideas, and build. Drive, we're a team of intrinsically motivated, hardworking individuals. 
if you're not driven, if you're not willing to work hard, this is not the place for you. Trust, really what that means to us is we always do what we say we're going to do. Whether it's mm-hmm. a commitment to a client, if it's a commitment to your colleague, if it's a commitment to your manager, if it's a commitment to your direct report, commitment to a peer of yours, if you're going to say it, you better do it. Mm-hmm. Ideas really means to us, best idea here wins no matter where it comes from. The status quo is never good enough. I like that. In an industry that is incredibly legacy, slow to change, if you really think about construction, there has not been a ton of major market moving innovation in a long time. We in large parts are still building the same way that things were getting built 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's mm-hmm. tech platforms. Yes, there's file sharing. And I mean, there's certainly things that have changed. I used to at Clune, we used to order sets of drawings for every subcontractor that was going to bid the project. You know, thick sets of drawings at $100, $200 a piece times 50 subcontractors. I would take the drawings once they come in from Cushing, roll them up, put a transmittal for every subcontractor, go up to the reception, put it in the subcontractor's box. They would drive in, come pick up those documents. <laughs> so I can't even imagine what the bill was for reproducibles at Clune in those days and, and all over the place. And obviously now, you know, you could run an entire construction project without ever printing anything. So, I mean, there have been business innovations, but like from a construction standpoint, not really. Sure. And then the last one, the last core value is build. So we're, we exist as a business. Our purpose as a business is to build meaningful relationships, which is with your team internally, which is with your clients, but it's also with the architects that we work with. It's also with the buildings in which we work. It's the project managers, the owners, reps, the developers, and it's also with our trade partners. So the reason that we exist is to build meaningful relationships. That's kind of our last core value. Mm-hmm. Every We want to have a meaningful relationship. Right. And so in your business, you, know, you came here, talk about these things that you're doing there from a lot of learning, which is great. You step into this role, you're starting the business, like talk about some of the challenges you had from you know the day you opened your doors to kind of where you are now and some of your learning you know, just to kind of share with some of the listeners. Sure. When you go from being a cog in a wheel to being the ultimate decision maker and the person who has ultimate authority and responsibility for everything in an organization, I learned very quickly. And I think a lot of people learn very quickly that you don't know anything. And the stuff that you do know is valuable, mm-hmm. but you have to learn every day something new. And so For me, joining Vistage was so powerful to be around the table of an outside board of other CEOs in other lines of business because I didn't know the difference between culture and branding. I didn't really know the difference between sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand how a corporate P&L was structured. I certainly couldn't read a balance sheet. I didn't understand loan covenants. I didn't understand the difference between audited financials and reviewed financials and compiled financials. I didn't understand any of that stuff. And I had to figure it out. I was put in a position where you had no choice but to figure it out. And so the Vistage group has been super, super helpful for me on that stuff. But the stuff that I did know inherently was that 
if you create an environment, if I was able to create an environment where I would be excited to work every day and I would be challenged, the culture grows from there. If I could create an environment where I, Tony Ionessa, would never want to leave, most people that come to this company are never going to want to leave. But I also am creating an environment and I'm humble and aware enough, aware enough to know that we are going to continue to invest in our talent over and over and over again. And some people might leave. And we've had great people leave the organization. And my hope is that they'll come back as a boomerang. We've had some boomerangs actually leave and come back. We've also yeah. had people leave and become clients. So I'm aware enough to know that the more that we continue to invest in our people, the better that they're going to become. And there's a risk that they're going to leave. And I'm okay with that because yeah. I, I think back to my experience and the reasons that I was unhappy inside an organization and I've created an environment. Again, I would be happy and engaged to come to work. And honestly, guys, the people that benefit from that culture the most, in my opinion, is our clients. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. when you have really engaged employees and you have people that are excited to come to work and eager to prove themselves, the clients are benefiting from that. Yeah, absolutely. What are some learning moments you've had where, you know, I think about the seat that I sit in and I'm like, man, I fail a lot at this job. Like, and I suck. And you mentioned you don't know anything. And I remember when I, I moved into the president role here and I was flattered, I was excited, but I didn't let anybody know, right? Like I was scared shitless because I'm like, I don't know anything. And I failed a lot. Like, so maybe talk through some of those failures that you've had where you're like, man, if I would have done this different or, or whatever that might be, right? There's so many. I think for the sake of time, probably the one that stands out to me the most is just when I thought I had it all figured out, 2020, we just... In three years, we had you know eclipsed $100 million in sales. And we were just on a rapid ascent. And I kind of looked back and I said, wow, this is amazing. And we've, we've made it. We've made it. You know, We've proven to the market that we can do these projects. We've proven to the market that we're a viable business. We've proven that we're, we're one of the players and we're recognized as one of the players. We've made it. March 13th rolls around and the, the country gets shut down and the world gets shut down. And when you're a builder who is essentially returning phone calls to build high-end, awesome downtown office space for fast growth businesses, which is what we were at that time, our business was cut overnight, 60% in revenue and like 100% in profit. So then you sit back and you go, well, I just when I thought I had it figured out, I now don't know a goddamn thing again. And so uh, uh, another story I'll share with you is I picked up the phone and the first person I called was Mike Clune. And listen, Mike has no reason to take my call. Mike has no reason to spend time with me on the phone. And to his credit, because the guy he is, he did. And I said, Mike, I don't know what to do. You know, I have no idea what to do. And he goes, I've got about 30 minutes. And I just started asking him questions. And he just started rattling off. Here's what you do. Start here. And I just ferociously took notes. You know, call your bank as soon as we hang up, draw your entire line of credit, move it into your account, pay the juice on it because it's worth it. Because they're going to, 
if they're going to change their mind about lending, they won't do it when they have, when you've drawn on the account. So I was like, great. Don't cut anybody's health benefits. Keep everyone's employment health benefits. If you do have to make salary cuts, make a cut. And if you have the ability to pay that money back, just accrue for those salary cuts and pay, pay the employees back when you have the cash. Stop paying wow. yourself. You know, I didn't pay myself for over a year at that point. And, you know, in the leadership positions, they need to take a bigger salary cut. And you need to communicate that to the team that this is what's happening. And you need to be strong. You need to be competent. But you got to realize that this is an existential crisis. And so I think my, I ended up doing everything that he told me to do and then, and then more and then some. And, and we got through it. And we easily, easily, easily could have called it a day and packed it in because at that point, there was nothing good going on in Chicago commercial office. So that was a huge failure moment to everything for one second that you've got it all figured out to everything that for one second that you can take your eye off the ball. You never know what's coming around the corner. Now, are we going to have another global pandemic? Maybe, but if it's not that it's going to be something else. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really, really good reminder to me that no matter what you've accomplished or achieved, you need to continuously be learning and continuously be improving or else you're going to be left behind in the dust. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. Wow. I love that you picked up the phone and called Mike. Yeah. I mean, that is, it takes, it takes definitely some humility from you. Then you look at his side, you know, a competitor of yours, pick up the phone. And I mean, your point of earlier, like, you know, that's a guy that people probably want to work for. Right. Because mm-hmm. he's probably practicing what he preaches, which is awesome. Yep. And I think that's a good point that I want to make is when we talk about culture and we talk about core values and investing in, in employees, you have to walk the walk. It's not just talk here. We fire incredibly strong, capable employees if they don't fit in culturally. Yeah. Because I have firsthand seen what it does if you don't yeah those are business decisions that hurt your your pnl it's the right thing to do if you're going to talk about how important your culture is you better live it mm-hmm. no that's exactly right and you know to as we all advance in our careers and we're getting those phone calls for advice you know we've been in our respective careers long enough to turn around and give it back like some leaders that can transcend maybe how they feel or what's right for their business that day and just be good leaders and offer that kind of advice like that's we need more people like that in this world because that's what it's all about it's it's at the end of the day success you know you can always create more or be looking around the corner for the next thing but it's it's when you get the opportunity to give back like that i think that's such a great lesson agreed All right, Michael, I think this is a good point for you to do our usual wrap here. No problem. Tony, we we end our podcast asking a relatively simple question. It's kind of a play on words, but just amazing the answers that we get back. So if you need a little time to think about it, fine. But there's the saying that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And we flip it around and say it's not who you know, but who knows you. So take that any direction you want. You you talked about your two daughters and maybe your third on the way, but what do you want people to know about Tony? Hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a great question. 
It's interesting because I am an incredibly private person. My wife and I are both incredibly private. We're not, we don't like to talk about what we're doing or what we've accomplished. We like to let the work or the actions for itself. And, and it drives me crazy when people talk about all the things that they're doing. Probably the thing that motivates me the most is when you get that call from somebody and they say to you, like, how did you get that deal? How did you make that hire? How did you do that? But I'm working on being more open. Mm -hmm. I'm working on being more willing to share because Michael, to your point earlier, I do think it's important to help those along that are coming along in their career. And I've, I've found myself sometimes with imposter syndrome where you, you focus on a goal for so long and when you achieve it, you kind of look around and say, like, I can't believe that I did this. And you almost are, you almost don't recognize yourself. But I think what I would say probably the most I want that I want people to know is what I've learned is that people that are hard charging and driven and confident, not arrogant, because the difference between arrogant, arrogance mm -hmm. and confidence is humility, which mm -hmm. is something that I pray for and work on every day. Confident people that are continuously driven like myself, I had this goal and I continued to work hard, put your head down and you know, you're driving up that mountain and you're charging and you're pushing and you're pushing and you're pushing. And you are so certain that if you do all these things and you get to that top of the mountain, that you're going to feel something different. And the reality is there's absolutely nothing at the top of the mountain. And so you're faced with the choice of, I can continue climbing to find a new goal and push myself even further, knowing that there's nothing else up there. Or you can try and enjoy the journey. Mm -hmm. And so what I guess I'd love people to know about me is that they've learned a lot about me from what I've shared, but probably an incredibly valuable lesson I wish someone had shared with me is there is nothing at the top of that mountain. And if you're not enjoying the journey and the people that you're climbing with, there's really no reason to get on the mountain to begin with. Yeah. That was almost like a play on the climb, man. That was perfect. I love that. I'm telling you what, that was amazing. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much for sharing today. You know, we've known each other. It's great to get to know you more. And thank you for sharing your story on the climb today. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.